0: James Bond Japanese proverbs say Bird never make nest in bear tree Just a slight stiffness coming on
1: Your cellos are studied various I'm just up here at Oxford Brushing up on a little Danish
2: You know what I can do with my little finger
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 20. This is the original podcast overflowing with outstanding observations and occasionally objectionable opinions on the overconfident, omnipotent operative, yes, the only on target 00, James Bond 007. We welcome you into the Cubbyhole with open arms. We're an inclusive club open to all ages and backgrounds. So whether you're a youngster selling wooden elephants in Thailand, or an elderly horse trainer turned intelligence officer turned chauffeur. We hope there's something for everyone. An appreciation of Alan Partridge is also desirable, but not essential. Anyway, thanks for coming along on this journey as we review each and every one of the Bond films. Remember, you can also join us over on social media. Likes and follows on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter are always appreciated, as are reviews on your podcast platform of choice. Furthermore, we're also keen to hear your opinions on the Bond franchise. Phil is still hoping to receive an email from someone who shares his affection for Eric Serra's The Experience of Love. Let's face it, that's not going to happen. But if you do have some sensible thoughts that you'd like to share, do get in touch with the show via email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. And we'll try to fit them into a future instalment of the Q Branch, i.e. Questions Branch, segment. Now, in our previous episode, we discussed Bond number 19, The World is Not Enough, a nuclear disaster averted by Bond's quick instincts and Denise Richards' improbable scientific credentials. There were question marks about Brosnan's adaptability, or lack thereof, in rising to the challenge of a slightly different script and direction. However, there were still some excellent performances from Sophie Marceau, Robert Carlyle, and Robbie Coltrane, as well as an emotional farewell for Desmond Llewellyn as Q. So it's on to the final instalment for Pierce. Did his tenure end in triumph or disaster? I think we all know the answer, but uh, let's find out as we delve into Bond 20, Die Another Day. With me to discuss, it's the usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who'll light the fuse on any explosive situation and be a danger to himself and others. It's Phil. How are you, Phil?
2: Yes, thanks very much, Martin. Very well, thank you. Um, thank you to everyone that's been getting in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, obviously, we always do appreciate your comments on the um, bomb franchise and the podcast. So thank you to Mark Garland and Keiichi Mayamura for your likes on Facebook. Um, and on Twitter, thank you to Gsmooth89, It's a Trap Quiz, Big Vern, Abound Art, Gianni Cozy, Matthias Pontau, Um, At Fixus Films, um, share my reviews, and Barry Sherwin for all your follows.
1: And secondly, it's the man who people call the self publicising adrenaline junkie, but he prefers the term adventurer. It's Adam. What's new, Adam?
3: Thank you very much, Martin. You are quite right. I am a self-publicising adrenaline junkie. I'm very good, thanks. I was thinking back to last week, and uh, not actually to The World Is Not Enough, but specifically to The Wild Wild West, which uh, sort of buttered its way into our conversation. Of course, it's only afterwards, um, after we recorded, that I realised there is a slight Bond link uh, with The Wild Wild West. Will Smith was very much playing his character in that as James Bond. Indeed, he introduces himself in that film, I believe, as West Jim West. So, you know, something we didn't quite uh, pick up on at the time, that at the Razzies that year, the real Bond went up against Will Smith's James Bond.
1: Okay, very good. So, I mean, what do we reckon, Will Smith as James Bond? Would it have ever worked? Can you imagine him in what film would he have worked best in?
3: I imagine very much on the lines of a comedic Roger Moore-style James Bond. I'd be absolutely happy to see that, as long as Alfonso Ribeiro, who played Cousin Carlton in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, also comes along to take over the role of Q. And, of course, yeah. we've got to get Joseph Marcel, Jeffrey the butler, to play the Bond villain on that occasion.
2: Well, this is, you should suggest, that I think Uncle Phil would be a great villain in, in that sense. You know, he'd be, the, he'd be almost like an Auric Goldfinger-style villain, I think.
3: I mean, James Avery, who played Uncle Phil, does have great pedigree in villains. He was the voice of the Shredder in the cartoon of the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles back in the early 90s. The problem we'll have with getting him is, of course, he has passed away. Uh, so he, he's not going to be taking that role on anytime soon, bless him.
1: You're the only Uncle Phil, certainly of this podcast, Phil. So uh, we'll move on to our double A team now. Adam and Alan, what did they make of Die Another Day?
3: Thank you very much. So, yes, Die Another Day, the 20th James Bond film released to coincide with the 40th anniversary of the release of Dr. No way back in 1962. This film is directed by Lee Tamahori, his first and only Bond film, and it's Pierce Brosnan's fourth and final portrayal of 007. It was released in November 2002. That's a full 14 years after Pierce Brosnan's original breakout performance in the action classic Taffin.
0: Then maybe you shouldn't be living here!
3: of the Day was made on a budget of $142 million and it goes on to gross $431.9 million making it the highest grossing Bond film of the Brosnan era. Retrospectively though it has acquired something of a dodgy reputation as pretty much by far and away the least liked Bond film amongst Bond fans. So to find out what might be so bad about it let's hand over to Alan. For the final
0: time, Dishy Pierce Bron hums down the gun barrel. Bang! Jesus, where did that bullet come from? Blood dribbles down. Bon surfs into North Korea, where he diamond bombs hunky terrorist Zhao in the face, sends the mad West-hating Colonel Moon over a waterfall, saved by the bell, but gets captured by Moon's angry dad, Q Madge's atrocious title song. After 14 months of torture by a kinky Korean and her pet scorpions, Bond, who now looks like a 70s prog rock hobo, gets released. After a shave and a near massage parlor porno, he flies to Cuba to make some softcore erotica with Halle Berry. He sneaks onto an island face off clinic by punching an annoying South African, I oh, don't need no wheelie chair, and finds out being turned into an albino. He escapes, and Halle Berry shows off her bikini bod doing a surely fatal CGI cliff dive. Some dodgy diamonds lead Bond to sneering, posh boy Gustav Graves, and after some excruciating flirting with Madge, you handle your weapon well. I like to keep my tip up. Bond and Graves have a bloody mental sword fight out of nowhere. Seriously, it's like they think they're in Lord of the Rings or something. Then Bond has a go at Basil Fawlty's VR video game and picks up, drumroll please, an invisible flaming car. You're cleverer than you look. Still better than looking cleverer than you are. Bond swings an invite to Graves' Ice Palace Orgy to admire his Sun Space Laser before bonking aptly named MI6 sleeper agent Miranda Frost. Then, in an increasingly ludicrous series of events, Bond rescues Halle Berry from a laser quest, discovers Frost's a traitor and Graves is really Colonel Moon post face off, rides a rocket car away from the Sun Laser, kitesurfs a flaming tsunami in appallingly dated CGI, and takes out Albino Zhao and his Jaguar in the invisible Aston. Bond and Barry team up to sneak onto Graves' plane, where he's put on a Robocop costume to control the laser. Remembering what worked in Goldfinger, Bond has Graves and his flunkies sucked out the plane. Oh look! Parachutes for the both of us! Time to face destiny! Time to face gravity! Barry somehow beats Frost, an Olympic gold medalist fencer, in a sword fight. Read this, bitch! They go innuendo-tastic with some tiny diamonds, and Penny turns Basil Faulty's VR game into our own private rampant rabbit. The end.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Adam and Alan. Die Another Day, as you mentioned, is the 40th anniversary bond. All of the bonds went to the Royal Albert Hall premiere, apart from... Sean Connery, who is probably uh, probably laughing his head off that he actually missed it. It's incredible that this film is served up as the anniversary special. Uh, unsurprisingly, it was Brosnan's least favourite and pretty much everyone else's least favourite of his Bond films. Also, of course, Sir Roger claimed it was a new low point for the series, citing those uh, ridiculous moments of CGI and the invisible car. So I get, when the man who starred in A View to a Kill says it's a low point for the series. Uh, you know, things are getting slightly bad. So I guess, with all that being said, I think for me, as with all the other lesser quality Bond films, should we say, it doesn't start too badly. In fact, I think I remember sitting in the movie theatre as a, as a teenager, really looking forward to this one and being genuinely impressed with the, the opening. Uh, I think it's just as the film progresses and we get to about the 50 minute mark and Jinx Makes her way into the uh, the film. It really takes a nosedive, or perhaps more accurately, drops off a cliff. And uh, no amount of can- kite surfing can uh, redeem it. Uh, so I think, I, in general, I think it's too little in the way of storyline, too much in the way of ridiculous gadgets and kind of ham-fisted callbacks. Uh, but I don't know what. Uh, I guess I'm not being harsh. But uh, what did you think, Phil? <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, Martin. I I think that there is there are a lot of films that we love in terms of the Bomb films that are sort of they're kind of they're rough gems in a sense. You know, we've talked about this in previous episodes. With this film, it's it's just bad from start to finish. I mean, in in certain senses I agree with you, Martin, in the fact that the start of the film, it there's moments where you think it's gonna kind of be okay. And then it, it just seems to lose all sense of reality and it just seems to be that they wanted to make something that's as outlandish and as, as ridiculous as possible. It was almost as though they got so transfixed with having these amazing gadgets and using as much CGI as they could and you know, and having as much action sequences as they could, that they completely forgot the balance of what makes a great bomb film. Yes, you need the action sequences, but you also need behind it, you need the characters to actually be believable and you need that storyline to be there. And in this film, it just it's, it's so bizarre. I hate to say, it, I feel embarrassed often watching this film because it's so bad. You know, you look at Pierce Brosnan, and he, you kind of tell that he really doesn't want to be there. You know, you look at Halle Berry and you think, Halle Berry as an actor deserved a much better film. What the hell were they thinking of?
3: I'm always very mistrustful of a popular opinion, particularly when it is all so weighted towards this whole, oh, die another day, it's the worst Bond film of the lot. So I really went into this hoping to be able to rediscover it in a sense or to find things in it that are actually really underrated and underappreciated. Unfortunately, that is very difficult to do with this one because it does reach, I guess, a peak of silliness. Um, it kind of—it's a compendium of all the classic Bond errors that the films make when they don't work so well that we've gone through before. Too much emphasis on. I guess science fiction in terms of the plot and the hardware in this film, just going way too far beyond the realms of believability to really work. And then the new problem which you've touched upon Phil is the fact that the style, the directorial style of the film and also the CGI as it was employed, has served to really date the film very quickly. And you look at back to the 60s Bond films and they haven't dated at all really. They still feel really fresh and sharp and stylish. And kind of similarly to when Tom Mankiewicz came in and we get that run from Diamonds Are Forever and The Man With The Golden Gun the adoption of a style which is more parodic and which feels very of its time, as opposed to being timeless, is something that always has a habit of hindering the Bond films when they go down that route, and, and so it is with this one.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure even Cubby Broccoli himself do you think he'd have called it science fact instead of fiction?
3: Ultimately, no. I mean, you've mentioned Roger Moore having his, 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 there's something to say about this one. I think the exact quote was, I thought it all went a bit too far and I went to space, which I think pretty much sums up just how far into the realms of just pure science fiction we've we've gone in this one. I mean, yeah, we really have gone very far beyond the pale in terms of these being believable espionage thrillers.
2: And it almost feels a little bit with this film, like it's kind of rammed down your throat as well. It almost feels like it's, I mean, I've I've often compared it to the films like The Fast and the Furious, which came out at this sort of time. It's that same sense of, there's no real background to it. There's no real, I say subtlety, but it's just, it almost feels like everything's made to be, it's almost shouted at you rather than actually you're able to enjoy it. It just feels very weak for me in terms of an offering in the, the franchise. I'm not sure if you guys agree, but...
3: Yeah, yeah, it is very weak, for sure. Um, I always think that Bond, when we get too far into the realms of CGI, immediately spells trouble, because as we've talked about before, the beauty of the Bond films is how much they do in camera, is the fact that they're doing stunts for real, they're staging these spectacular action sequences for real. And the problem is that when most of what you're seeing on screen isn't real, and you can tell it's CGI, and you can always tell, it just saps your ability to really believe in what you're seeing or get invested in the suspense of the action. And, of course, this is a problem. Bond films have used CGI before, but have used it sparingly, so you don't notice it's being used, which is the perfect time to use it. In this, of course, we get the nadir of perhaps the whole Bond canon, which is the kite surfing the tsunami. An unbelievable stunt as it is, but one which is staged pretty much entirely in CGI. Brosnan himself is the only real thing on the screen in those sequences and you can tell and so it doesn't feel believable it doesn't feel like you're watching a real spectacular action scene
1: Yeah I think I'd go along with that 100% Adam I think uh, I'd agree with you on the the dreadful CGI I think uh, in a previous episode you mentioned the Bond films tend to flounder whenever it's set in Asia and we do we sparingly go to Hong Kong but even that is CGI they've just put a background of the uh, the skyline of him getting out of Victoria Harbour. Uh, so, yeah, I think, uh, I guess going to Asia is the least of his troubles in uh, in this film.
3: Well, the other problematic thing looking at this film now is, of course, the fact that a lot of those Asians ...elements in the story have been, have been whitewashed, quite literally. We have a main villain who is um, Korean, who is transformed into a posh Westerner. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. I guess the other thing to quickly mention about um, the datedness of this film is, is Lee Tamahori's direction. He's, he's a very fated New Zealand director, but here he's almost trying to ape Martin Campbell in terms of bringing that really dynamic, fast punchiness to the directorial style. But unfortunately, he uses a lot of gimmicky tricks like slow motion a lot of the time in the action sequences, which is completely unnecessary. And then very strange sped up uh, sweeping camera movements for no apparent reason again. And it all just looks a little bit silly and ridiculous.
1: Yeah, you can kind of tell that the director wants to take it in this this different direction right from the beginning when we get the bullet coming through the gun barrel. And so I think at that moment, you realise... This is either going to be amazing or it's going to be dreadful. And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> it was dreadful. Usually we start with the pre-title sequence. And actually, I think this is maybe one of the, the shining lights of the film. At least it starts quite well, in my opinion. We get lots of action, lots of explosions, some dodgy CGI. Uh, but I think in general, it's, it's dealt with quite well. It makes you excited for the rest of the film. But I, think, I think they handle it quite well, the, uh, the pre-title. What did we reckon?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that the opening sequence is probably the best part of the film, and I think we've mentioned this in previous episodes, but I think for this one, it really is the the premise that was behind it was a really good one. I think, you know, this idea that Bond is, you know, is, is basically left to, left to hang out to dry, basically. There's no way for him to, to escape from from being tortured, and there's no gadgets to help him. There's no, you know, sort of Western um, ally to help him get out. He's literally in a foreign land. It was, at the time, it was probably quite a new idea in that sense, and it was something that we could have run with as an audience but then obviously then the rest of the film then degenerates into this bizarre sort of almost one prolonged action sequence almost.
3: I would actually say that this film remains good and remains interesting beyond uh, the opening title sequence and into the film proper a little bit. Again, we're seeing those two really good, interesting things that they consistently do with the Brosnan films to give them a bit more texture. We've gone to a new place to find our villains. Obviously here, that conflict between North and South Korea. The fact that Brosnan's Bond, once again, is vulnerable. He has been compromised in this instance by A, the fact he's been abandoned by MI6, but also the fact that he's been tortured for 14 straight months by an enemy power. It's, it's kind of taking the character to a much more fragile place potentially than we've ever seen before. And of course, straight after his return, he is stripped of his double 00 number by M. And so we set this up almost as a kind of license to kill style revenge mission. And it's just such a shame that it didn't carry on in that vein. I guess one thing to say about the opening sequence is uh, in terms of surfing into North Korea, that must be the least defended beach in the country country i mean there's a few kind of outposts on the beach and then there's sort of just two guards who are walking in the opposite direction to the sea where presumably any enemies are going to come from
1: yeah i do believe the uh north korean authorities had a press release condemning the film not for being a bad film which it probably should have done but uh maybe that was one of the reasons as well that <laughs> the defense doesn't look great does it
3: well, yeah, maybe that, was, um, that would have just done Kim Jong-il's publicity in the West a whole world of good had he just uh, agreed with the popular opinion at the time that this just wasn't a very good Bond film.
1: I think one other thing I quite enjoyed in the pre-title sequence was right at the end where uh, General Moon is kind of looking over the edge and says, my son is dead. One of his assistants surely should have gone up to him and said, are you sure? Do you want to check? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Jaws survived an even larger drop in a previous film. <laughs> no, he's dead.
3: <laughs> Waterfalls, the classic fake-out of the Bond films. But yeah, that was, that was a bit of an oversight from a uh, General Me. But he doesn't like his son very much at this point. They don't like each other. So maybe actually it's just wishful thinking on his part. He wasn't actually that annoyed at all. He was just trying to downplay it a bit in front of the men. Otherwise, it looks a bit suspicious if he's like, Yay! I've got rid of the little brat at last!
1: Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that (laughs) yet. Do you want to send down a search and rescue? No, (laughs) he's dead.
3: (laughs) Nah, let's just assume he bought it.
1: You know, I did quite enjoy the, because often, or very rarely, does the the pre-title sequence link with the actual story. So I did quite enjoy that aspect of it that we get, we see Bond being tortured, we see the agony he's going through as the titles are rolling just a little bit unfortunate that we have to hear Madonna at the same time, but I did quite like the the link between the pre-title and the actual story.
3: Yeah, it's very golden eye in that sense, isn't it? In that you think that it's going to be this one-off um, thing, but of course it, it sets up the sort of fake-out death of um, the character who will prove to be our main villain, although we don't know it at that point. But yeah, it does work particularly
2: well here. Moving slightly forwards as well, the, the point where obviously he is rescued and um, they take him to the um, the hospital that's on the the naval ship where it's he's basically being investigated that scene between m and bond where you know bond effectively realizes that he's been not sold out but the fact that um you know m is very much disappointed in him and, and feels that he has he has almost betrayed mi6 in terms of she feels that he has revealed the information that has compromised other agents i think that is also quite a brilliant scene that between those two and probably one of the rare sort of positive moments from the film itself.
3: Yeah for sure and an intelligent thing to do because of course um, Brosnan's Bond and M as played by Judi Dench have um, built a relationship of absolute trust and confidence of, in each other up across the previous three films starting from a place where neither liked each other and here because of what's happened because he allowed himself to be captured and then threw his cyanide pill away and so created a huge political problem for M. Bond has to regain her trust in this film. She's gone all the way back to not liking him, thinking that he is out of shape, that he's, he's lost his usefulness. And so it is really interesting that certainly in the earlier investigative scenes in the film, Bond has to work his way back up into M's trust and confidence. Of course, we do see yet another moment of M going a little bit uh, Frederick Gray in terms of uh, when uh, Bond puts Gustav Graves in the spotlight. She says, oh, we better tread carefully. He's politically connected. I mean, did constantly. Constantly this comes up, people who just, oh, oh we'd better, better be careful, oh, oh, take it easy, oh, they know my mate down his club. God, give me a break.
1: We are incredibly politically connected inside 14 months. He's got a knighthood, he's got connections with Judy Dench. What's happening?
3: Yeah, and that's 14 months from the point at which he goes over the waterfall as the Korean Colonel Moon. So, so, so you build into that the time it would have taken for him to transform in the face-off machine, the time to build up these connections, to set up that fake diamond mine in, is it Iceland I think it's in, where they're laundering the, uh, the conflict diamonds, to then get enough of a profile and to do enough charity work or whatever it is he's doing to get into the stage where he's on for a knighthood. How has he done that? 14 months? That's ridiculous.
2: The only reality TV stars have have had a a quicker rise and fall from fame in that amount of time, I think. Do
3: you think actually, because we mentioned The Apprentice briefly last week, do you think he just won The Apprentice? Was that it? Like he went into Alan Sugar, I've got this great idea, I'm going to build a diamond mine in Iceland. No one's exploited it yet and there's loads there. I like that, you're hired.
2: Yeah, maybe it's just being bankrolled by Alan Sugar. He's actually got no money at all. It's just all ba- all Alan Sugar's money is just. Get- it's just an Amstrad satellite. That's all it is.
3: I was going to say, I don't. If it had been an Amstrad satellite, I don't think it would have been any need for like all the British and American forces to have been so worried about it because it obviously wouldn't have worked.
2: So, what do we make of Graves as as kind of the main villain then? I mean, obviously, we see that Colonel Moon kind of transforms into. Um, this very middle class sort of Western, you know, businessman, almost, you know, sort of almost aristocratic style um, villain. Do we think that Toby Stevens, as of playing the role of Gustav Graves is a good addition to the film, do we think that he gives it the the level of, sort of villainy that's required from a Bond villain or do you think he misses the mark?
1: Uh, I think he misses the mark, Phil. I think you said the whole film... Has no subtlety, and uh, that's what I wrote down for his character. Was no subtlety at all. He's completely overegging, overplaying the role at uh, every scene.
3: Yeah, I think Toby Stevens gives good sneer, I'll give him that. It, it's a nice bit of sneering pantomime style that he gives us, but I think that's pretty much it. Uh, he's hindered in a sense by the fact that um, Graves doesn't actually have a huge amount to do. He's introduced to the film quite late because of, of course, the bait-and-switch we've had with his true identity, which is Colonel Moon. Um I do think it's quite uncomfortable, ultimately, that, that they've done that. Again, it's a slight whitewashing of the role. Uh, and also the fact that he, as Moon, ab- seems to abandon all the martial arts skills that, that he possesses early in the film. Of course, because Toby Stevens can't do that level of martial arts. So he's, he's kind of just lumbered with that bulky Robocop suit. But I think also the, the problem if, with it is, is that a lot of that character and, and what's sort of interesting about it is sort of built around that very tense relationship with General Moon, with his father. But because they're kept apart pretty much throughout the entire film and when they're brought together, he is now a Westerner and he's transformed himself. It's such a ludicrous, crazy, out there way of being reunited with the son you thought was dead that the emotional dynamic of that relationship is completely undercooked and just doesn't pay off in the way that it needs to, to give that character the richness, I guess, it needed to really work as an interesting new villain.
2: Would we say that Gustav Graves is perhaps the worst villain of them all in terms of the Bond franchise, or is there anybody worse? Um, I think that there's something kind of interesting going on in
3: that this is essentially a story of the three Bonds in in a strange sense. You've got the actual Bond, who is Pierce Brosnan, You've kind of then got Jinx, who is almost like a straight down the middle female version of Bond. If you were just going to write Bond but change the gender, that's pretty much what you get to. But then, of course, Graves is also, in a sense, a version of Bond. He, he you know, he specifically says that he modelled himself on Bond. He's playing up as a sardonic kind of parody of that sense of Bond as this Western gentleman. I think also there's an interesting sense in that he kind of crosses the two villains of Octopussy in a weird way. He embodies the sort of play boy villain nature that Kamal Khan had with that crazed mad militant that General Orlov perhaps represented. So I guess intertextually there are some interesting things going on with how that character's been created. But he's certainly down there. Just just Toby Stevens, I think, isn't given a lot to work with and I think in his own right doesn't deliver a performance which is quite rich enough and layered enough to resonate in the way that it needs to.
1: Well, I agree with you, Adam, in your assessment of the 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 reuniting of those characters, General and Colonel Moon. It doesn't really work and it ends up being a little bit of a comedy doesn't it on the plane especially with the the use of that slow-mo makes it even more ridiculous so I ended up laughing when I think the director was trying to make it an emotional scene wasn't he between the two and eventually General Moon is killed.
2: I don't think it helps we have that odd um, effect as well where obviously to electrocute people it's almost that sort of Scooby-Doo-esque electrical current going through them is this sort of like blue flash.
1: I thought it was a bit senator palpatine emperor wasn't it from star wars I think Toby would have done quite well with those lines. No, no, no. No, no.
3: I think that finale also is a damp squib in that, the, of, of course, it's very small scale. We talked back in Tomorrow Never Dies about that the stealth ship battle is the last great big battle we see in Bond. But this is all built around those two head-to-head battles, and neither of them are particularly well choreographed or particularly exciting or interesting, at least of all uh, Graves versus Bond, when he's just sort of waddling around in that big stormtrooper outfit. I don't think he's the emperor in Star Wars parlance at all. He's looking more Boba Fett at that point.
1: I did, uh, While we're talking about that end scene, did anyone notice that the, the pilot goes to the toilet and never returns?
3: Maybe, I didn't notice that, actually. Maybe that's just a, a metaphor for the sort of lack of um, investment that's uh, going into that scene on the part of everyone. Even the extra plane, the pilot's had enough of it, so he just wanders off. Miranda Frost is incredibly slow to stop that, ludicrously over-the-top fight, which has taken out half the building and most of these presumably quite antique swords that are in there. She finally comes in and very forcefully says, that's enough. Really? That, it, it's enough now? It was enough like five minutes ago.
2: In fairness... Bond and Graves did at least complete the duel where obviously Bond draws blood from the torso as as Graves pointed out was the old fashioned way.
3: Well Madonna had money on it didn't she? Uh, Oh no she didn't, she doesn't like cockfights, she didn't have money. I was gonna say she's just doing that so that Madonna gets her 50 quid out of it or whatever it is. This is another Razzie winner actually, Madonna followed in Denise Richards footsteps and won the worst supporting actress Razzie for her very brief appearance.
1: Yeah, talking of uh, Miranda Frost, I, I think Rosamund Pike is maybe one of the other shining lights of the film. I think she does quite a good job as, uh, as Miranda Frost. As opposed to Toby Stevens, I think she does a great job in being the, uh, the villain. I think she delivers her lines really quite well. Not, I think she pitches it in the right level, not too overplayed, not too underplayed.
2: Yeah, I agree with us. I think Rosamund Pike is one of the few sort of beacons of hope from this film in in many respects, you know, because she does give quite a good performance as uh, Miranda Frost. She sets up Jinx and she sets up Bond at the Ice Palace um, without either of them realising. So I I think in terms of that sense of building that... um, Deviousness in terms of a bomb villain character, I think she does that very well obviously, there's not really a sense of menace behind her because that's not the the type of character that we're looking for in that sense.
3: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm quite as big a fan as as you guys. I think I think the things that really stand out for me. We talked about the cat fightiness of the world is not enough. And actually, there's a similar dynamic uh, going on between uh, Miranda Frost and Halle Berry as uh, Jinx. Uh, and obviously, that's building up to the fact that they will have a climactic uh, duel on the plane together. But there's a really nice sort of sense of them both buying into kind of vamping up the cattiness of those exchanges they have in the Ice Palace first over dinner when it's very innuendo tastic, and then later on when they trap Jinx in the room to drown and, and it turns a little bit more vicious between the two of them
2: Ooh. yeah nice moves just like Bond he was pretty vigorous last night as well <laughs> he did you I don't know he was that desperate well he's not coming back for you just died running trying to save his own skin hello oh. oh. It's pretty good tailoring I hope it doesn't
3: shrink when it gets wet She's not really served by the fact that there's a, li- there's a lot of inconsistency going on with this character as written. You know, a lot is made of her being frosty by name and frosty by nature. But she seems very, very quick to go to bed with Bond uh, when they're at the Ice Palace. And, and the only real reason for that is to obviously disarm him in terms of put, removing all the bullets from his gun while it's under the pillow. And then afterwards, um, when she is killed on the plane and Bond finds the body with Jinx sort of sat nearby... Bond sort of seems a little bit distraught and a little bit sad that she had to be killed after all of this. Which is strange because earlier on in the Ice Palace, Bond did try and shoot her in the face. So I'm not entirely sure why he's suddenly so distressed at the fact that she's dead. Like before, he literally tried to shoot her. To be absolutely fair to the Dream Machine, it does kind of solve the plot hole of Face Off in that if you are going to change someone's whole DNA structure, not that you can do that in any legitimate, sensible way, of course, but you do solve the problem Face Off had, whereby Nick Cage and John Travolta just trade faces, and yet they've also traded vocal cords, apparently. John Travolta has either slimmed down an awful lot or Nick Cage has put on an awful lot of weight very quickly because Travolta's is a lot fatter than Nick Cage is. Like, just so much of the face-off thing just doesn't work at all. Whereas at least the pseudo-science of this does solve that issue.
2: Yeah, but one of the most ridiculous parts of this film is when we see the clinic in Cuba, and we're led to believe that the way that these people can then generate perfect accents in their new language is by having a tape being played repeatedly while they're in the dream machine, of their new voice. And it's just, how the hell is that gonna work? Because we're led to believe that Zhao is being turned into this German guy from Hamburg. And he's meant to have this perfect German accent where he's just listening to a tape that you'd find in a branch of Frankie and Benny's.
3: Sticking briefly with the face-off clinic, do you think actually the the eagerness to shut this place down on the part of both uh, Bond and indeed uh, Jinx of the NSA is the fact that this is the technology that's existed for years and this is what they've been using to change Bond's appearance every uh, so often?
1: I think my new found love of diamonds are forever. I think I, I prefer Blofeld's cloning techniques to, uh, to this
2: as we discussed in the diamonds Are forever episode that was actually mashed potato that we used for these said lava pools so uh, so that was how they got around that problem
3: can we set a competition on social media for our cubbies to create the best uh, facial sculpture from mashed potato that you can and we'll give a prize to the best one i'll give extra points if anyone does a really authentic one of that idiotic, annoying South African man who is also going into the face-off clinic. Who do you think he was trying to become? Do you think he was actually Blofeld and that actually it's him who's Christoph Volts in the film and not Christoph Waltz, who is not Christoph Volts in the film?
2: Yes, thank you. Yes, I knew we were going to bring this up. Yes, I want to apologise to all the Bond fans out there. I made the mildly ludicrous suggestion that Christoph Volts appears in this in a kind of almost famous or before he was famous role as it turns out it's not Christoph Waltz it's just a random extra that looks suspiciously like Christoph Waltz from a very odd angle
1: Uh, most of my enjoyment of watching this film was getting to that scene so I could have some photographic proof (laughs) so I guess we were talking about the the clinic the surgery clinic which is when we're first introduced to Jinx as a character this is or just just after we're introduced to her coming out of the uh, the sea. For me, it doesn't work at all. I know what they're trying to do—the female James Bond—but I think she's not helped by the screenwriters here. I think the script is dreadful in terms of her having double entendres almost every single line, right until the end. Halle Berry, by far, a better actor than than she shows in this film. So, what did we reckon?
2: As I've said before, it's kind of from the actors that we have in this film, you'd expect so much better from it because. You know, Halle Berry is a very, very accomplished actor, and yet it's it's just a shockingly bad portrayal because it's just and it's you don't really think it's it's anything that she's doing wrong, it's just the fact that she's given a duff script and it's you know, it's almost these sort of embarrassing one-liners that she has to deliver when we
3: look at other sort of fellow secret agents who are paired up with Bond. They're always a little bit different to him in order to, to make that point of comparison. So, like, Anya Massaver and A Spy Who Loved Me, you sense she's more intelligent than Bond because she's not as physically able. Whereas Wei Lin in Tomorrow Never Dies is more physically able than Bond. You sense if they were to fight each other without guns or whatever, Wei Lin would probably win um but jinx sort of doesn't have either of those things she's written just too much as just bond but a woman and also falls into that classic trap of of needing rescuing of of not being able to kind of be the master of her own destiny in this film like bond has to save her not once but twice at the ice palace first from lasers secondly from water um i think she bring actually a lot of charisma and actually a lot of sass to the role she has a couple of genuinely funny moments where she does things like a yo mama joke to him i think it's gustav graves or mr kill when she's in the uh, other chair it also leads to the first time that we see bond actually in the throes of having sex with someone which i don't know if you guys felt the same i thought this was very very uncomfortable and, and just it just felt very silly and dodgy and a little bit 90s softcore erotic thriller
2: well, I think that scene is made worse by the fact there is um, some infamous trivia. Apparently, in one of the outtakes, apparently Halle Berry accidentally chokes on um, part of the fig she was trying to eat in one of the takes that doesn't get in. So, I, th- I think that may, may have made it worse. The fact that you know Halle Berry nearly died having this really awkward sex scene with Pierce Brosnan. So that's that's probably tarnished it even more, really.
1: The direction they were going for was that Bond has been in captivity, I guess, for fourteen months. And he's, uh, he's a randy little bugger anyway, isn't he? So he's, he's finally getting his, getting his end away. But uh, yeah, it comes off as very uncomfortable and weird. I think that sex scene would have been less awkward if we'd just heard a Roger Moore, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh.
3: In terms of miscasting in this film, do you think there is any role more miscast than getting for the head of America's Secret Service, Mr. Blonde from Reservoir Dogs?
2: Yeah, I was hoping we wouldn't have to bring him up because... It- For me, Michael Madsen isn't really acting in this film. He's just Michael Madsen. That's I just get the feeling he's just being a grumpy American. That's all he can do.
3: Is Michael Madsen ever really acting? I mean, he's Michael Madsen in every single film. He just kinda comes in. Gravelly voice. I hope no one's superstitious here. Uh, Yeah, stuck
2: in the middle with you. I think it would have been better if he had just walked on backwards and started singing Stuck in the Middle of With You. I think that would have made it more of a believable performance. The whole bass
3: is exploding around him in that finale, that he's just sort of doing a little shuffle and shimmy. Well, I don't know why I
1: those lyrics are suitable for M. Why did she go there tonight? Why is she in Korea?
3: The whole Judy Dench going into action cinema always yields these bizarre moments when she is playing opposite actors that you never in a million years ever thought she would ever appear opposite. I think her sharing scenes with Michael Madsen is one of them. It happens again in The Chronicles of Riddick when suddenly she's doing two-handers with Vin Diesel. There's just something that always looks so weird about it, isn't there? Just following up on um, on awkward sexual scenes in this film, I guess we should perhaps talk about Miss Moneypenny's hijacking of uh, Q's VR video game. Quite how she managed to reprogram it to turn it into her own sort of whatever it is she turns it into. Um, Or or whether Q put that in the programme in the first place is an interesting question. I mean, Q is the pervert-in-chief. He always spies on Bond having sex. Do you think he himself, John Cleese, created this subdivision of the programme, which was just a VR sort of wank den?
2: Maybe it was... um... Sharon, the tea lady, maybe Sharon, the tea lady, came back and helped to put in this special um, virtual reality option on the the glasses that made that meant that the female staff could you know have a have some enjoyment during the tea break. I don't know.
1: I was going to say I enjoyed this part, the VR part, but I enjoyed the first VR part where because uh, it's quite shocking the first time you watch it. You're thinking, what's go- what's going on? In the words of Partridge, in the why is Money Penny dead? And he's got to free M. So I think I think the VR works quite well. Uh, but I think it was quite good and I actually quite enjoyed the little joke scene with uh, with Money Penny.
3: <laughs> but I'm still interested in in what Q was doing creating this part of the program. Like what, what's he put that in there for? Is it to train the fellow 00 agents in being grand seducers and for being good enough at sex to be able to kind of seduce anyone that they need to? Is this why Bond is such a good lover because secretly Q branch has this program? that you can go on to improve your technique.
2: Again, the trouble with that is it's virtual reality, so all you'd end up doing is humping the floor. That's all you could end up doing with that. It's You know, it's it wouldn't work. Well, you don't know, there
3: might be other accoutrements to the VR set alongside the, uh, the headwear.
2: Oh God, yeah, this really is channel five at 11 o'clock at night now. Do we want to touch on, because we have avoided
3: it. I'm sure Phil will have a lot to say on it, we have avoided the invisible car now that we're sort of on cue and, and his coterie of gadgets. Um, I actually rather like um, which is rare for an action scene in Die Another Day But I do quite like the gadget car chase um, I don't think it's by any means one of the greatest in the series But I think there was a level of creativity and, and spectacle to it um, which, which is lacking from some of the more CGI-heavy um, scenes in the film Particularly as it comes straight after that ridiculous rocket car chase But I kind of like little elements of it Like the fact that the ejector seat is used to flip the car back the right way up And, uh, you know, it's almost this kind of I guess almost kind of a Pokemon battle, isn't it? It's I'm going to play my mortars against your Stinger Missiles.
2: That car chase, from my opinion, is actually a bit of an insult because it just feels like it's kind of rammed down your throat. It's like, look, Bond has got all these great gadgets on his car. But no, Zhao's got the same level of gadgets too. And look, it's like you know, the unstoppable force and the immovable object. They Neither has an advantage. Oh, no, wait, now we're going to slide around on some ice and then drive into the melting ice palace that isn't made from CGI at all. And then we're going to make it look like Bond's going to get speared. But, oh, no, hang on, he's got his uh, invisibility cloak. Yay, it's like Harry Potter. Bye, out, you're into the sea. Goodbye. It's just, that's, that's what it makes me think of. And, I know, and again, going back to, you know, obviously that is probably the few moments of the film where they don't rely solely on CJ. Obviously, again, we have to applaud Vic Armstrong for the stunt coordination of that sequence. That's probably the, the scene that winds me up the most because it's, it's just so far-fetched. It's just so, it really is just the Fast and the Furious. It really is just, you know, they may as well have had, you know, Vin Diesel and Ludacris and all of that cash. You know, I'm surprised that Michelle Rodriguez didn't appear halfway through with a rocket launcher and a, you know, a fully modified Ford Mustang chasing them around, you know, just doing bloody laps of the icebergs. It's just, I, I, ha, I have real hate for that sequence and it's because it's just so absurd
1: i i agree more with adam i think i think the car chase is a is a rare good point of the film i think it's probably lost i understand what you mean phil especially invisible car is ridiculous but the actual the car chase is the film might have lost your goodwill by that stage but taken on its own i think the car chase is quite a, a spectacular one i think it's i enjoy where this film has tried to call back so many times to all the other Bond films, so it's quite nice when we actually get a refreshing mix-up of the formula. They're on the ice, skidding around, and the the villain actually has some decent weaponry to uh, attack Bond with, which we haven't really seen before. So, uh, yeah, for me, I think the car chase is quite nice, but, uh, yeah, I think by that stage, you, the film has probably lost you.
3: <laughs> and it's kind of the only good thing this film gives Zhao, who's an incredibly one-dimensional character. It's almost like... Normally, a, te- a henchman in the Bond films will have a physical abnormality, but is also given some kind of character. In this, they don't give him any character. They just give him two physical abnormalities, the, the sort of pale face and the diamonds uh, that have exploded into it. Uh, and something we'll talk about a little bit going forward is the fact that this film also comes out the same year as The Bourne Identity. And those first three Jason Bourne films are a real thorn in Bond's side throughout the decade in various ways. And of course, that first Bourne film has a brilliant Car chase, and if you remember, it's it's the one with the minis, and so the driving stunt work in that is so much better than in this one that it does overshadow it. And a lot of people at the time did make that point. Can you swim? Yeah.
1: Ah! So we've spoken a little bit about the uh, the cars there, but what else do we have for die another day, Phil?
2: Yes, thanks very much, Martin. So um again, we had a mild rant from myself about the um the car chase sequence in um Iceland. Um just to go on to the cars that are featured in the film. So this is kind of the um the standout return for Aston Martin to the franchise. Um obviously, for the majority of Pierce Brosnan's time in the Rollers Bond, he's been with BMW. Um, But by this point, Jaguar and Aston Martin are both owned by the Ford Motor Company. So Ford did a um, quite lucrative partnership deal with the the Bond producers to feature their cars exclusively. So in this film, Bond um, is in the kind of Aston Martin's flagship for the early 2000s, the Vitor Vanquish. So this was first released in 1998 as a concept car. And it wasn't until 2001 that the first models were released. So this is kind of Aston Martin's transition into the early 2000s. And it's a car that they still make to this day. Um, As I've already mentioned, Ford kind of have a a huge um, feature in this film. So we see that Zhao has the Jaguar XKR um, supercharged model. um, And also that Jinx arrives in the Ford Thunderbird. Um, This is also, as I've already mentioned, kind of the first film where the villain gets his own plethora of gadgets as well. So the Jaguar XKR includes a rear-mounted machine gun, rockets, um, side-mounted missiles, a thermal imaging camera, grenades, mortars, and the radiator-mounted spear, which, of course, he tries to use um, to kill Bond in the Ice Palace, but obviously fails when the invisibility cloak returns. Now, in terms of the actual chase itself, there would have been a bit of a disparity between performance because the V12 Aston Martin had a 5.9 litre engine, 460 brake horsepower and could hit 200 miles an hour. The XKR was slightly underpowered. It had a V8 4.2 litre, which was supercharged. Top speed was only about 180 miles an hour and it produced about 380 to 400 brake horsepower. So a bit of a disparity between the two cars. But obviously, when you're on ice, that doesn't really matter. You kind of you both saddled with the lack of grip. Omega also had a sponsorship deal for their watches, so the Omega Seamaster watch was used again. So Bond uses that for his laser cutter, and it's also used as a detonator at the very start in North Korea. So there's there's a lot of sort of far-fetched gadgetry in this one, which is um, a little bit sort of excessive. And that's probably summed up the most by the, uh, the cloaking device on the Aston Martin, kind of not really possible then and, and still not really possible now to be honest.
3: Phil, do you think the Aston Martin ever in the film looks sillier than the scene just before the car chase when there's that moment when it just kind of creeps into the frame in invisibility mode when he's kind of sneaking up on um, Zhao and his henchmen? There's just something about the outline of the car slowly creeping in, which just looks so funny and ridiculous. That was probably my biggest single laugh whilst I was watching the film.
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of the height of ridiculous. particularly the fact that they keep in the tyre tracks. You know, they're in quite deep snow and you can just see the tyre tracks advancing. You know, the fact you wouldn't find that quite alarming if you just saw that in deep snow, just a random set of tyre tracks appear.
1: Yeah, I enjoy Pierce crouching behind the invisible car. That's What's that going to do, crouching behind it (laughs) as he gets in? He may as well stand up.
3: I have to say a missed opportunity is there in um, the scene when he starts necking with uh, Miranda Frost uh, teenager style just in the car park between the cars. If the one that he had leaned on had been the invisible car in invisibility mode, and so everyone just suddenly looks at them and they're kissing whilst leaning back seemingly in midair and must have suddenly been like, hang on, what's going on here? That doesn't look right.
1: Miranda Frost perfected the expert level of the VR lovemaking machine. Okay, so I'll head over now to Adam and we're gonna go beyond the book. So what do we have this week, Adam? Thank you
3: very much. So this week beyond the book, we're going to look at James Bond adaptations on the radio. And we're doing it this week because Toby Stevens has been playing James Bond himself in BBC Radio 4's adaptations of Fleming's Bond novel since 2008. Uh, We'll come to those later because they're quite interesting. But the, the second ever adaptation of James Bond was on the radio. It was specifically on South African radio, an unofficial adaptation of Fleming's novel Moonraker. Uh, produced by the Durban Repertory Theatre for South African broadcasting company Springbok Radio. Uh, This was in 1958, and it's famous because this is the time where Bob Holness, later of blockbusters fame, plays James Bond. Apparently, everyone praised him for his cultured tones in the role. Sadly, no known copies of this uh, radio special are known to exist, so sadly, we'll never hear... Can I have a pee, please? 007 himself. The next one was on the BBC, uh, an adaptation in 1990 of You Only Live Twice, which stayed reasonably faithful to the book being set post the death of Tracy in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Adapted by Michael Blakewell, this starred Michael Jaston in the role of Bond. He's a kind of older character actor, Jaston. You might know him as uh, Gwilym from that landmark uh, BBC TV series of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, or as Raquel's father in Only Fools and Horses. Also starring weirdly in this radio adaptation in the role of Ando, none other than our old friend, Burt Kwok. So then in May 2008, we get to the first of the main run of the uh, BBC radio adaptations of Fleming's novels. Very faithful to the books. So set in the fifties and early sixties, they were all planned as 90 minute radio movies. So the first one was to mark the Fleming Centenary, and it was an adaptation of Dr. No. Uh, All of these uh, ones are directed by Martin Jarvis and produced by Rosalind Ayres. And alongside Toby Stevens as James Bond, they all boasted all-star casts. In Dr. No, David Suchet, TV's Poirot, uh, plays Dr. No. Clark Peters, Lester Freeman in The Wire, played Quarrel. And Doctor Who himself, Peter Capaldi, appeared as Q. This was followed in April 2010 by uh, Goldfinger, in which none other than Sir Ian McKellen came in to play the title role. And indeed, Rosamund Pike returns to the Bond fold. She takes on the role of Pussy Galore. Uh, Martin's favourite Caddy Hawker was played by the then popular impressionist Alistair McGowan. Uh, Tim pigott smith plays the ill-fated gangster solo. He would go on in Quantum of Solace to play the Foreign Secretary. And Tom Hollander appears very briefly and unrecognisably as fellow gangster Jack Strapp. Uh, Tim pigott smith actually returns to play Karen Bay in uh, 2012's From Russia With Love. Massive Bond fan Mark Gatiss plays Kronstein. Dame Eileen Atkins took on the role of Rosa Klebb. And Johnny Sessions, another great impressionist, uh, took on the role of Rennie Mathis. We then go to Honor Majesty's Secret Service. This was in 2014. The great Alfred Molina took on the role of Blofeld. Uh, Alex Jennings, a great sort of theatrical character actor, played Mark ange Draco. And the actress Lisa Dillon played Tracy. And she'd previously played both Honey Rider in Doctor No, Tilly Masterson in the Goldfinger adaptation. And in the next one would go on to play Tiffany Case in Diamonds Are Forever. Interestingly, in this Honour Majesty's Secret Service, Joanna Lumley appears in the role of Irma Bunt, who had herself appeared as the English Angel of Death in the 1969 film. So following that was Diamonds Are Forever in July 2015, in which Alex Jennings returns again, downgraded from the role of Marcon's Draco to the role of Shady Tree. Uh, And Jared Harris of Chernobyl and Mad Men comes into play the main villain of the novel Diamonds Are Forever, Serafino Spang. Uh, Diamonds Are Forever was followed in uh, 2016 by Thunderball. Lisa Dillon is back once again, this time as a naughty nurse Patricia Fearing. And Tom Conti takes on the role of Emilio Largo. Moonraker followed in 2018. This is where uh, Jared Harris returns in the role of Scotland Yard's Ronnie Valance. uh, And Samuel West takes on the role of Hugo Drax. He'd previously been in the very first one as Playdell Smith in Doctor No. Uh, and two other adaptations followed that, Live and Let Die in 2019 and The Man with the Golden Gun in 2020. Uh, they're all up on YouTube, all of these BBC radio adaptations. As I say, they're 90 minutes long and very faithful to Fleming's novels.
1: Okay, thanks a lot, Adam. I think I'll, I will have not listened to any of the, the radio plays, but I'll definitely check them out now. It'd be interesting to see if, uh, I mean, surely Alistair McGowan did the voice of Hawker the Caddy that we, we hear in the film as well.
3: He plays a Sleysinger one. So I've I've listened to the first three so far. I've listened to Dr. No, Goldfinger, and From Russia With Love. Um, He strangely isn't doing Hawker as he is in, in the film. He's kind of reinventing the role, which is a little bit disappointing. I have to say, in terms of if you do listen to Dr. No, David Suchet's vocal performance as Dr. No is absolutely appalling. It's the worst performance I've heard from an actor of that kind of stature. On the one hand, he's, he's playing up the whole Chinese aspect of the character, and so he's doing an incredibly backward and racist slurring of R's and L's. But also, he's, he's seized on Dr. No's metallic hands and has decided to play the whole character as a robot. And so his Dr. No sounds like a strange Chinese android. It, it really does have to be heard to be believed.
1: Bon just cannot go to Asia, can he, without running into trouble? Okay, so it's on to the next segment, which is Now I Know You. Now
0: I know you.
3: Oh,
1: no.
0: You're that secret agent, that English secret agent from England.
1: This segment is all about the callbacks for the film that we're reviewing, calling back to previous Bond films. Now, of course, we've mentioned that this is the uh, Die Another Day was the 40th anniversary Bond, so they really did hit you over the head with all of the callbacks, numerous ones. I think there are, technically there are callbacks to every one of the 19 previous Bond films in here. Uh, if you are sadistic enough to uh, find them yourself, <laughs> you can if you want to. I'm not going to give you all of them, uh, but I'll, I'll just pick out a few of them. So I think the, the obvious one, of course, is where we go to QBrench and we get those overt callbacks, the, the props we see again from Thunderball the jetpack, and we see, of course, the dagger shoe and the attache case from, from Russia with Love. The other, probably the, the most obvious one, is Back to Dr. No with Jinx Johnson emerging from the water uh, a la Ursula Andress in Dr. No. We also get some flamethrower action as well, which is uh, reminiscent of Dr. No. We get the parachuting, Gustav Graves parachutes down to Buckingham Palace. Apparently they had to do that one very early in the morning to avoid all of the tourists. So here's, that's one of the uh, the action scenes that's not faked. It is an, a real parachute jump. We get something real in the film. Um, down to Buckingham Palace. Of course, that's reminiscent of The Spy Who Loved Me. So uh, Gustav Graves, obviously, a, he's an English gentleman. He's a fan of Sir Roger, And we get numerous callbacks to Goldfinger, the classic Bond film, Q, specifically says that he never jokes about his work and I think the line is he calls back specifically to his predecessor. We get the uh, lasers numerous in number or numerous lasers from Goldfinger rather than just the one. Uh, We get the main villain sucked out of the plane similar to Oric Goldfinger. Linking back to more recent Bond films, Bond has the love scene with Miranda Frost where he puts the gun under his pillow. So that's a nice little callback to Tomorrow Never Dies where Paris Carver asks Bond whether he still sleeps with a gun under his pillow. And we see him doing that in this film. And uh, also another Miranda Frost link. Uh, She calls, when she's talking to M, she calls him a blunt instrument. Uh, And that goes back to uh, one of the Fleming books, I think, where Bond is described as being a blunt instrument. So uh, of course there are many, many others there are also there are some funny callbacks to John Cleese's previous comedic work in the film as well. Um, the, uh, the Holy Grail is referenced with the, uh, the flesh wound. Uh, but uh, apart from that, I think uh, I'll let you find them yourself because there are so many and there are there are just too many. I think they really did try and they went overboard with the, uh, the callbacks in this one. What did we reckon, Adam and Phil?
3: yeah there really are so many that it becomes kind of a Bond tribute act almost instead of a Bond film proper I think you caught all the the best ones my favourite that you didn't mention actually and and building on the sort of advanced sexual kinkiness of this film uh, was the callback to From Russia With Love in the Hong Kong hotel room where Bond reveals the camera behind the mirror that was presumably there to film him and uh, Peaceful Fountains of Desire much as uh, Spectre and Rosa Klebb filmed Bond in bed with Tatiana in From Russia With Love that original kinky sensor baiting uh, bon scene, uh, but yeah, no. For the most, but that's certainly one of the more subtle and intelligent of the callbacks in this film.
2: One of the nice little references I think they do make in Q's workshop is on the very back wall. You'll see the um, the old Acro Star plane from Octopussy in, from 1983, the one that um, Roger Moore pilots through the um, through the airbase. So that was quite a nice little relatively subtle reference in the background if, if you quite eagle-eyed.
3: Yeah, I think the crocodile uh, suit from Octopus is on that back wall as well, isn't it? An awful lot of octopusy going on in this film.
1: Oh, and of course my favourite callback being the appearance of Deborah Moore, Roger Moore's daughter, as the air stewardess on the plane. So that was, I think that was one of the more heartwarming callbacks. It's nice to see her inclusion. Okay, so the next segment will go to... What do we have this week from our listeners, Phil?
0: Answer my questions quietly, but clearly.
2: So in terms of questions this week, a few sort of unique ones. So Joanna has been in touch with the show. Have the Koreans actually seen Nicholas Cage's appearance in Face Off? And has that was that an influence on the film? And also in the hospital scenes in Cuba, why didn't Bond just kill Zhao rather than waking him up? That, That quite irritated Joanna in the end.
3: Well, the second one's just a plot point, and it's, it's because Zhao knows who um, the traitor in MI6 is who set Bond up for capture, so I imagine he keeps him alive in that sequence because he still needs that information from Zhao and so can't just kill him. Uh, the second one, have the Koreans uh, seen face off. Kim Jong-il, um, North Korea's dictator at this point in time in 2002, was a huge film fan, to the extent that there's an incredible real-life story where he actually captured from South Korea a husband and wife, director and actress, and forced them to make films for him which he produced i've got one of them a godzilla knockoff called Pulgasari, uh, but they're all shades of awful it has to be said and they actually mounted a daring escape from uh, north korea after a few years of this um so kim jong-il was a big film fan so so it's likely that he did see face off i don't know what he thought of it he might be a big nick cage fan so so yeah may, maybe they did maybe they're, they're well up on face off maybe that's why it's in the film
2: Okay, thanks guys. So the very final question this week um comes from again from Twitter. So what do we think is the best finale or part of a bomb film that raises the stakes in terms of tension or drama? um What would you guys say for that part?
3: I think Goldeneye is a greater uh, finale sequence, beginning with just the the building of suspense with the exploding pen and how that whole uh, sequence is handled, and, and then comes to its explosive conclusion, followed by the viciousness and the brutality and the physicality of that fist fight between. Uh, Sean Bean and Pierce Brosnan the other one that I really love in terms of finale sequences is actually for your eyes only the the whole suspense sequence on the side of the cliff as as Roger Moore is trying to mountaineer his way up to the monastery followed by almost a kind of guerrilla attack which resolves that conflict between uh, Christatos and Columbo as well and then of course you've you've also got the added tension of General Gogol flying in in the helicopter and that leads to the standoff with him and Bond and the ATAC and then Melina Havelock's story is also also resolved so there's, there's an awful lot of, of resolution of character stories within a sequence which isn't played for spectacle but that is played for suspense and for tension
1: yeah i think there's a good uh, good choices there adam i think i'd go perhaps octopusy. i really enjoy when bond's in the clown outfit and uh, I, I still love that juxtaposition of him looking ridiculous, but it is a real moment of tension and his desperation as he's pulled back by the guards. But he, he's the only one who knows that the, uh, the bomb's in there. So I'd go for that one.
3: Yeah, of course, Goldfinger as well. That contrast between the, the, the smaller head-to-head between Bond and Odd Job, the big sort of gunfight happening outside, and then that final race against the clock to turn the nuclear bomb off. That's, I guess, always going to be the classic as well
2: yeah i think they're good i mean i have said tomorrow never dies as well just that sense of the very finale also that big showpiece finish where it's sort of it's building up to you know can bond actually stop the, the missile from being fired and obviously he's got to defeat elliot carver and stamper okay thanks guys so that was our q branch for this week so please do keep getting in touch with us uh, with your questions suggestions and theories for the bond franchise okay thanks
1: phil so it, that Brings us to the final segment of today's show, which is the quiz. So I have the honours this week. So there's no car engines. There's no anagrams. Did you know Sean cringe? That is an anagram of car engines. So uh, (laughs) Sean is not impressed with the with Phil's quizzes either. Uh, So this uh, straight quiz, three questions each. We'll have a tiebreaker if we haven't found a winner by the end. Okay. So question number one, Phil. How many years has Miranda Frost had in cryptology?
2: Uh, I'm going to say three.
1: You looked unsure, but that is the correct answer. Well done, Phil. Three years, and she hasn't turned up anything on Gustav Graves. Over to Adam, question number one. When Bond and Graves are fencing, how much do they wager for each point scored?
3: I don't know this at all. I feel like there's a five in it somewhere, so I'll say £50. Pounds.
1: Is it not a £1,000 a point? It was a thousand pounds a point, yeah, but uh, there's no stealing, Phil. So it's just still one to, nil uh, to yourself. So uh, back to Phil now, question number two. Uh, so this is the, uh, the true or false round inspired by, by Phil's amazing quiz in previous weeks. So, Phil, Rosamond Pike had to leave the set of Die Another Day one day for her graduation at the University of Cambridge. Is that true or is it false?
2: Well, this is only based on the fact that I watched this film with my fiance and she was wikipedia in rosamund pike during the film apparently she went to oxford so i'm going to say that's false
1: well i phil you didn't fall into the trap so you're two nil up now so back to adam he needs to get this on to stay in adam while filming the love scene phil has mentioned that Halle berry choked on a fig is it true or is it false lee tamahori dived in and performed the heimlich maneuver
3: um, yeah, but that, that seems like something he'd do. He's, he's a Kiwi, so he's a good lad. So I'll say that's true.
1: Unfortunately, it was false. It was Pierce himself who performed the Heimlich maneuver and saved Halley Berry from that uh, disastrous fig eating. So uh, it's all over. It's 2 0 to Phil. It's, uh, you're doing quite well on the quizzes, Phil. Uh, you're, do you want the next questions anyway? <laughs> see, see how well you do?
3: Yeah, let's see what they yeah. would have been.
1: Yeah, go on them. So uh, question number three for Phil. Uh, producer Michael G. Wilson finally makes a credited cameo in this film as General Chandler after his many uncredited roles. Which Bond film marked his first appearance on film? Well, he came in sort of the mid 70s,
2: so. Spy, You Love Me?
1: You're on the right lines, Phil, but he did actually make a, a cameo in Goldfinger as one of the, uh, the guards at Fort Knox. Oh, right. So he did, his main cameos do start from the spy who loved me but he also appeared in goldfinger so that was his his first and uh adam your question number three was uh toby stevens is 33 years old in die another day uh, 16 years younger than pierce uh, can you name the other bond film where there's a 16 year gap between the bond actor and the main villain uh
3: that's surely a view to a kill isn't it roger moore and christopher walken
1: yeah, certainly is. Roger Moore, 57 to Walken's 41. So uh, yeah, the uh, 2-1, we'll give. Uh, we'll have that as uh, the final score. So uh, Phil, what do we want to play us out for this week?
2: Due to the uh, the character who was at the gene therapy session, he was quite a nasty South African. So I think the Spit an Image song, um, I've Never Met a Nice South African, will be a, a nice way to play us out.
1: Okay, I'm not sure whether you'd say it's a nice way to play a set of but it's it's an interesting choice. Okay, so that's the end of today's episode. It's also the end of our reviews of the Brosnan Bond films, the end of his tenure as Bond. And of course, we come back in a big way with Daniel Craig and Casino Royale in our next episode, which will be in two weeks' time. So uh, thanks everyone for joining us today do keep up to date with our social media accounts as well facebook instagram and twitter send us your questions and uh fan theories if you have any so uh that was it for today i was martin i was adam
2: and i was phil
1: i've traveled this whole world of oz and
2: bazi to peru i've had sunstroke
0: in the and a swimming in timbatu i've seen unicorns in burma and a yeti in nepal and i've danced with temporal pygmies in a montezuma hall i've met the king of china and the work in yorkshire minor but i've never South African! Now he's never made a nice South African And it's not
2: bloody surprising, man Cause we're a bunch of illegal forces Great right black people!
0: got served in Woolies after less than four weeks wait I had lunch with Rowan Atkinson when he paid and wasn't late I know a public swimming bath where they don't piss in the pool I know a guy who got a job straight after leaving school I met a normal Merman and a fairly modest German But I've never met a nice South African No, he's never met a nice South African And that's not bloody surprising then we a bunch of till these
3: murderers who smell like baboons do you in our week off, we should go and watch Pierce Brosnan in Mamma Mia.
1: Well, yeah, I was planning on watching Taffin as well.
3: We'll do, we'll do the Brosnan, we'll do a triple bill Mamma Mia, Taffin, and Death Train. <laughs>